Face to Face Games proudly presents Grand Prix Toronto, the first Grand Prix featuring the Hour of Devastation limited format, July 21st to 23rd. Come face pro players as they flex their muscles just one week before the Pro Tour. Every Grand Prix entry includes a sleep-in special and registered sealed pool for players with buys. Visit gptoronto2017.facetofacegames.com to register and learn more. I remember someone saying Finkel had creatures in his board when he plays his Urnum. Game three, I lose. Former Canadian national champion Peter Radinich from his 1997 Pro Tour Chicago tournament report. The old switcheroo is a deck sideboarding technique that has roots as far back in published magic as the original versions of Schools of Magic. Put simply, a deck starts off either poor or totally bereft of a certain type of permanent, most commonly creatures, and then sideboard in multiple copies of this type of permanent in hopes of catching the opponent unaware. In Radnich's quote above, John Finkel played a creatureless prison deck in Game 1 and brought in Urnum Jin and Wildfire Emissary in Games 2 and 3. Why would John play a strategy like this? Why does this sort of strategy work? In Game 1, Finkel's deck wins by combination slash lock. His victory condition is arbitrary, because once he sets his Icy Manipulator plus Icy Manipulator plus Winter Orb, his opponent would be able to cast only one mana spells during his own upkeep, unless his opponent has Diamonds or Felwar Stones. And John's victory would be virtually assured. His actual win condition is almost irrelevant. It's not as though his opponent has anything to say about how the game progresses from his force mana screwed position. Finkel, for his part, can deal with his opponent's creatures, including potentially annoying Birds of Paradise and Llanowar Elves with Pyroclasm, Serrated Arrows, Sword Supplashers, or Wrath of God, and will eventually win by Gaia's Blessing Recursion or two points after two points from Mishra's Factory. Here's the list from Jonathan Magic's first grown-up PT Top 8. John Finkel, Pro Tour Chicago, 1997. Uh, so one Floodplain, four Mishra's Factory, two Plateau, uh, three Savannah, four Tundra, two Undiscovered Paradise, one Volcanic Island. Three Armageddon, three Aura of Silence, four Counterspell, two Gaia's Blessing, two Gerard's Wisdom, four Icy Manipulator, four Marble Diamond, one Pyroclasm, three Serrated Arrows, three Sky Diamond, two Swords to Plowshares, two Sylvan Library, four Tithe. Uh, and three Winter Orb and three Wrath of God. Cyborg is one Aura of Silence, one Disenchant, three Urnum Jin, one Guy's Blessing, two Gerard's Wisdom, one Hercules Recall, two Pyroblast, one Red Elemental Blast, three Wildfile, Wildfire Emissary. I don't know if this is still the case, but this was John's favorite deck ever for a long time. It's such, it, he's so proud of this one element of it. It's such a masterpiece. Um, did you notice the only blue card in his deck is Counterspell? <laughs> his deck has only 17 lands. 
So what's the goal of this this deck? I know like Armageddon and, and Winter Orb and those types of cards, but what's it what's it trying to do? All right, so this is a kind of an echo. I used to tell this story, a uh, 1997 PTQ. I guess this was also from 1997. Maybe Yeah, 1997 PTQ. I only lost two games the entire PTQ. Unfortunately, they were both to John in the top four. So, uh, and the thing that's really poopy about it is John got a ratings invite in the mail two days later after defeating me uh, in, in uh, for a Paris invite. So, uh, and he was playing... Uh, a standard version of this deck. This was an extended version of this deck. So, uh, the combo is Icy Manipulator, Icy Manipulator, plus Winter Orb, like we said. So, you could get any number of cards from the combo, uh, I'm sorry, from the deck that were just synergistic with each other. For example, if all you did was get Sky Diamond, so his deck has only 17 lands, but he has like three Sky Diamond and four Marble Diamonds. So, it has like Basically, 24 lands, and he has four copies of Tithe. So, you know, even more primary mana sources than that. Tithe is a white instant that lets you search your library for a planes. It could also include, um, like, a dual land like Tundra. But if your opponent has more lands than you, then you could get two planes. So it's, it's a kind of a, a mini Ancestral Recall, like our podcast. So the combo, you could just get, like... A Sky Diamond and a Winter Orb, for example. So Winter Orb is a two-casting cost mm-hmm. artifact that says if Winter Orb is untapped, players can only untap one land per turn. So mana-hungry decks like, you know, me and you, we love to tap out all of our lands every turn. Mm-hmm. You just tap out all your lands, you just land a Winter Orb, then they become slow, right? And so if all you had was just one Diamond and a Winter Orb, you could cast, like two casting cost spells very liberally, right? Because you could, so let's say you have a, you have a Sky Diamond and and, um, and just like a Tundra, you can counterspell, and then on your own turn you'll untap the Sky Diamond and untap one land, which should be the Tundra. You can operate on two mana spells really easily. If you have only one Icy Manipulator and the Winter Orb, you can do one of two things. You can either just tap whatever land your opponent untaps on their turn, or you could tap your Winter Orb, which allows you to untap all your permanents. And, you know, which one you choose could, <coughs> excuse me, um, could uh, could vary over the course of the game. If you have the two Icy Manipulators plus Winter Orb, which is really what the real combo is, mm-hmm. you can both tap whatever your opponent untaps and tap your own Winter Orb so that you get, get an untap. But, like, you wouldn't necessarily do that. Like, let's say for sake of argument, you had two Icy Manipulators, two Sky Diamonds, and a Winter Orb, you might just, like, tap two permanents of your opponent every turn. They can only untap one. And then, like, eventually they're just going to be locked down by the Winter Orb. And then when they're, you know, when all their mana's tapped uh, and they're only able to untap one per turn, then then you might tap, uh, tap your Winter Orb and then just start casting real stuff. But the things that are powerful about this, like, for example, you could just have an Icy Manipulator and nothing else. If you have an Icy Manipulator and your opponent has one creature, like an Urnum Jin or a Pump Knight... At a minimum, they're forced to play another creature, right? So then Icy Manipulator plus Wrath of God is a combo. Uh, one Sky Diamond plus Icy Manipulator could be a combo. In the sense, you go second turn Sky Diamond or second turn Marble Diamond, third turn Icy Manipulator. It's just, uh, it's just uh, uh, an acceleration play there. But the real thing that, that has a lot of force in this deck is that... Um, if because you, you have uh, Winter Orb in your deck, your opponent is constantly forced to play more lands just to, to to keep up. 
So your Armageddon gets a lot of money. Like, you don't have to play more lands. You can Armageddon, it's very asymmetrical. Plus, you have lands like two Undiscovered Paradise. Undiscovered Paradise returns to your hand if you tap it. So mm. you have a, a steady stream of untapped lands. Uh, but that's... It, it's it's kind of a combo lock deck. And um, it just has a ton of different synergies. But uh, when we did the Decade release party mm-hmm. uh, at Neutral Ground, this is... This, when did I do Decade? 2006, maybe? 2005, 2006? One of the things that we had was, like, we had, like, this celebrity panel of, like, all these great players like Osip Lovadovich and John who had done well with or won, you know, pro tours or nationals and stuff with my decks. And they would gaunt, like, the people would just come, you know, to go to the to the decade signing release party. And one of the events kind of we had was uh, they could play against these great players playing my decks, right, uh, over the years. And some of them... Like, John could have played Napster, which is a deck that mm. he won nationals with that I had designed. But at one point, I'm just like, I got a surprise for you. And I busted out this deck and handed it to John, which is his favorite deck. And he just he he just had a ball crushing children with their then-standard <laughs> decks with his extended deck. And they're like, that's not fair. He's not even playing standard legal deck, right? Because they were all, like, these decks that were out of time, though, right? Like, yeah. standard from seven years ago or something. But he was playing an extended deck from seven. I'm like, it's not supposed to be fair. But the thing that was funny was Asher Hecht, who became you know a character in a lot of my my uh, writing later, became a uh, number one apprentice later. He was just a kid then uh, playing at the decade release party, and he was playing Heartbeat of Spring, which has the ability to untap all yep. of your lands. So John could never win. So <laughs> they just played a bunch. He just kept combo killing John. It's hilarious. Nice. And he had like counter spells and stuff. So John's like Armageddon. He's like, nah, model, model the mixture. <laughs> anyway, back to the old switcheroo. The opponent in game one, a white opponent in particular, will find his creature removal almost totally useless. I suppose if John decides to go beat down with Mishra's factories before locking up the board, his opponent might snag a land with a swords to plowshares. <laughs> But, for the most part, every creature elimination spell the opponent plucks is going to be a dead draw. Once John sinks in the combo teeth, clicking and clamping the opponent into a soft mana lock, it should become quite evident for the other guy to concede and bring in as many disenchants as possible for game two. Enter the old switcheroo. It's a subtle thing. If John's tapping all their lands down, even if they have, like, Lightning Boulder Sword Suppositors in their hand, he can attack them with Mistress Factories. Their lands tap so they can't get the guy. Mm-hmm. Now, the opponent is in this mindset that he has to break up an artifact-based combination deck. He isn't going to get stranded with these awful creature removal spells this game. No siri. No siri, Bob. He looks at his hand and sees maybe two disenchant-flavored spells, a pump knight, and a couple of lands. He keeps... He happily keeps. He sees his pump knight answered with a marble diamond. Nope, he thinks. Better not waste a disenchant on some stupid marble diamond. He sends in his knight and considers pumping for an additional point. I'll hold back, he decides, in case he plays something relevant for me to disenchant this turn. He sees a turn three Urnum Gin on the other <laughs> side of the table. The reason the old switcheroo works so well in this example is twofold. First of all, John's deck is extremely deep in the artifacts and enchantments category. The opponent has no choice 
but to respect the sheer volume of diamonds, icy manipulators, sylvan libraries, and winter orbs, any one of which is going to give Finkel a distinct advantage given his deck configuration. The opponent has no choice but to bring in anything and everything he can that can break an artifact or enchantment. He isn't going to rebalance his list at the cost of his victory conditions, so that means that his anti-creature spells are very likely going to be the price for bringing in his anti-artifact and enchantment spells. Because white removal is the prevalent sort at this point in magic history, and because as quick and efficient as they are, white removal spells in 1997 either kill creatures, swords of pleasures, or kill serrated arrows, disenchant, the opponent, able to kill an artifact, will no longer be able to kill a fast and dangerous fatty. The fatties in question are more than appropriate, quite ingenious. John devotes just a few sideboard slots, 6 out of 15, and fills them with cards that, any of which, can potentially win the game alone. His creatures are big, but also bust out as early as turn 3 with diamonds. His creatures withstand red removal. Lightning Bolt sets the watermark at 3 toughness. So, Wildfire Emissary has 4 toughness. Ernim Jin has 5 toughness. So, if somebody's going to leave in Lightning Bolt, which they might do because they can go to the face, still can't trade with these creatures. Because red removal, which go to the dome, is less likely to be sideboarded out between games than white removal. His creatures can tangle with popular weenies like Pump Knights, Ernim Jin, or can glide right by them unblocked every time like Wildfire Emissary. It's a small thing. Wildfire Emissary is protection from white. Mm. The prevalent sorts of creature removal, point creature removal at this time in, in history are Lightning Bolt and Sword Supply Shares. So you just play these creatures that are very, yeah, very they, difficult. Yeah, they, they cannot remove. John's sideboard devotes enough slots to the old switcheroo to make the change worthwhile, but reserves enough, 9 out of 15, to have other options as well. Vulnerabilities for this strategy, however. There are a couple of times when the surprise sideboard is not going to be as effective. One of them is when the opposing deck has a very focused proactive strategy. Mm. If, for example, the opposing deck does not have the ability to destroy one type of permanent or another totally different type of permanent, some versions of Black Beatdown, for instance, have no non-discard method of stopping enchantments and can kill creatures only with curse scrolls that are never going to leave the deck in any case, then the opponent is likely going to be indifferent to the old switcheroo. Beat me with enchantments, beat me with creatures, it doesn't matter. I'm going to try to beat you with disruption plus quick clocks regardless of your plan. Against this style of deck, more traditional sideboarding strategies are almost always going to be more effective than transformative ones. In fact, a deck featuring the old switcheroo may be at a disadvantage because the opponent may have sideboard cards that are effective against both configurations of the deck, while its own sideboarding may have a minimal impact on card interactions. Opposing combination decks are an even more pure example of the same problem. Generally, they will care about a deck's ability to break up the combination, meaning permission and, in some cases, disenchant-style cards. But for the most part, they have been tuned to beat faster and more consistent creature strategies than most surprise sideboards can muster. A more subtle problem exists when the surprise sideboard is no longer so surprising. Obviously, the technique is most effective early in a tournament before potential opponents know they might be facing the old switcheroo. Of course, when an opponent knows about a certain sideboard plan and the surprise sideboard player is aware that his opponent knows about the plan, there are a number of head games that can go on between the two players, something Finkel used to call winning the sideboard war. 
whether the sideboard war involves a rebel player sideboarding out his rebels against opposing rebel and former or massacre, or one player sideboarding out his Urnum Gins in order to avoid getting his 4-5 beater stolen via control magic, the, the strategy echoes that of the old switcheroo. Stranding the opponent's ability to sanction key permanents in his hand, sticking him with an inefficient draw. Uh, coining that term, winning the sideboard warp, John coined it actually at, a, I want to say, 1997 or 1998 $1,000 tournament in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. PA, against me. Uh, he utterly destroyed me. <laughs> so, uh, like, we had, like, an Urnum Gin fight, and, like, I always had my control magics in my deck when he had no Urnum Gins, and he just took all of my Urnum Gins. He's a horrible person. Anyway, modern applications of the old switcheroo. The, the most dedicated use of the surprise sideboard technique in recent memory belongs to EDT, Eric Taylor. During his successful bashing of the city of Milwaukee last spring. Eric Taylor, Grand Prix Milwaukee, 2002. A three Articar wastes to Battlefield Forge, four Coastal Tower, seven Island, three Mountain, four Shivan Reef, three Skycloud Expanse, four Absorb, four Counterspell, four Factor Fiction, four Fire and Ice, three Goblin Trenches, four Memory Lapse, three Prophetic Bolt, four Repulse, two Syncopate, two Wrath of God. Sideboard, Two Aura Blast, four Flame Tunkabu, two Gainsay, three Lightning Angel, and four Meddling Mage. EDT's transformative sideboard is particularly interesting because it plays on more levels than simply dead card generation and bluff based head games. Obviously, his deck starts out as a creatureless control deck, against which common removal spells like Flame Tunkabu and Repulse have minimal utility. He can catch opponents unawares with his transformative strategy and overrun them with his own efficient sideboard creatures. At the same time, the surprise sideboard actually allows EDT's Trenches deck to function more efficiently against some sideboarded opponents. He may have found that Game 1 against the Standstill Psychotog decks was quite favorable, but that the Trenches' instant plan of attack was less likely to win against a deck packing duress or mana short. ADT could have, against these decks, attacked on multiple levels, presented a deck that was not quite perfect control deck, not quite a perfect aggro deck, but had strong enough elements of both to keep the opposing sideboard strategy out of focus. From this, we can infer the optimal conditions for success via surprise strategy. Look back at Finkel's deck above. Imagine two creatureless prison-style decks, both laden with tons of artifacts, both stuck with tons of creature removal. Both decks will want to get rid of their creature removal after sideboarding in favor of control elements to stay a step ahead of the other guy's icy manipulators. When one deck has Finkel sideboard and the other deck has a transitional one, especially if there's an imbalance of information where the second deck is unaware of the first's old switcheroo, we have a situation where one deck will literally avalanche the other with different kinds of threats, but still be able to answer the opponent's cards. In this mirror match, you don't want to be the guy who didn't know that the opponent has Urnum Gin in his sideboard. The other unique situation where EDT's particular sideboard really shined was in the finals against his good friend Patrick Chapin. Pat, playing a two-color squirrel nest deck, had no access to Flame Dunkabu and, reserving opposition, couldn't answer a Lightning Angel in play at all. Lightning Angel is big enough to tangle with almost all of Pat's creatures and would race perfectly. At the same time, the Flame Tongue Cavu in EDT's sideboard would be strong against Pat's deck, 
which could literally never function against a superior creature base. With four meddling mages and two aura blasts to zero in on the uh, only problem card in the matchup, Opposition, EDT could almost guarantee a strategic advantage in post-sideboarded games. But to switch or not to switch? That's the question. As you may have guessed from our specific examples, the transformative sideboard strategy historically been most effective in creature-poor or creatureless control decks. The problem with this attitude towards surprise today is that an age where Burning Wish and Cunning Wish, but paradoxically maybe not Living Wish, are appearing in blue decks, sideboard space for these builds has never been more expensive. When you factor in, depending on the specific deck and creatures chosen, the transformative creatures can take up most or even all of a sideboard. EDT devoted 11 to 15 slots. The old switcheroo and wish-based main decks may not mix. That being said, that is not to say that some degree of deck-slash-sideboard transformation may not be viable in the upcoming standard format. The deck I posted last week, D4C 2002, runs no artifacts or enchantments main deck, but brings in potentially game-winning enchantments that demand to be addressed or will almost always devastate opposing strategies, compost and engineered plague. The threat of these enchantments can give rise to winning the sideboard warhead games, that will potentially strand disenchant or naturalize, even if they do not show up in games two or three. Another application is to bring in a couple of strategic enchantments in creature-based beatdown decks. Though it may seem counterintuitive, Zvimashowitz one considered sideporting three or four copies of Squirrel Nest in a red-green reckless charge deck similar to the one Brian Kowal played at Grand Prix Milwaukee. An unexpected strategy, to say the least. Squirrel Nest out of the board allows a beatdown player to produce a devastating threat on the turn following an opposing Wrath of God, a threat that in a post-sideboarded duel may never be answered that might just end the game all by itself. Have fun surprising your opponents. This is back from, this article back from 2002. Yeah. Oh, you marked the shavings at the bottom. I don't know. Read it, man. Mike has been a leading voice in the game's strategy for as long as there has been a magic internet. He is the former editor of the Magic Dojo and sometime pro player. Michael J. Flores' Decade is a compilation of Mike's first 10 years of strategy and theory before he joined MagicTheGathering.com and is available at TopAidMagic.com, yada, yada, yada. Anyway. That was not a respectful reading of my (laughs) biographical information for MagicTheGathering.com. All right, so I picked this article because this is, I think this is like really a present thing that people are doing today. Yeah. So so for, for standard right now, like one application, you know, I'm, I thought of when I was reading this was the like the, the Marvel versus Blue-Red Control matchup. Marvel um, versus anything, right? Sure, Marvel versus anything. For Marvel versus anything, people are just like, think about Brad Nelson's main deck, right, from this past weekend. Yeah. His creature base is four Ulamog. Four Rogue Refiner. Four Rogue Refiner. No, no Virtuoso. Yeah. So Rogue Refiner, like, point removal is terrible against Rogue Refiner. Yep. Like, if you shock it, I guess you shocked it. To and, get it, like, out of the way as a blocker. But, but they got two energy and drew a card. It, it's miserable to shock it, right? Yeah. And you can't really remove Ulamog from play. Like, you can, I guess, if you have very specific cards, like... Maybe cast out. Maybe what's a black white one instant? Anguish on making. Maybe anguish on making. Maybe cast out. Not a whole lot of ways. But you're like so far behind. You're behind minimum three one. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're if you're removing that, so any of the the strategies to remove Brad's main deck creatures are so hyper inefficient, right? So 
you can't wait to get your like whatever it is fatal pushes out of your deck and then he's going to bring in potentially Uvenwald Hydra potentially Tireless Tracker Tireless Tracker is so interesting it's a 3-2 for 3 the same as Rogue Refiner but it is so vulnerable to shock the first turn right mm-hmm. and then it, I mean at some point it's going off but yeah but like I just think that it's it's so stark like the Marvel decks like always like they're not doing a full switcheroo like like you know they're like they're not, no, they're not boring out their whole plan yeah, they're not like no creatures and then all the creatures right but yeah. they're but like it's a pretty big difference. Like, you just like land a uncontested turn three tireless tracker. It might take over the game, right? It might get huge. It might draw DI cards. Same with Uvenwald Hider. That guy's potentially huge drawing DI cards. So, like the Marvel decks always do. But the thing that's weird is all the other decks in standard also do it, right? Um, Mardu and Green Black both start out of these like beat down creature decks, but they go the other way. They add, like, long game cards and planeswalkers and, like, take out a bunch of creatures, take out their interaction, and they're just like, I am now a Soren Grim Nemesis deck. <laughs> like, hello, my name is Gonti. <laughs> I'm going to be followed by Obnixilis. We're going to play a very, very slow game. And, like, this is somebody who was, like, in game one, they were, like, landing a 3-2 on turn one or, like, winding Constrictor into Rishkar into... But uh, they're still doing that. Post-war. Yeah, some, but like they're but adding the planeswalkers or like adding like sure, the long but they're kind they're kind of like the, the grass and, and fatal push and stuff. Well, I think it depends, right? Yeah, or they should be grinding you, right? Like, I mean, if somebody's just like, if their least card advantageous card is like tireless tracker, they follow up with Gonti and Obnixilis. That is a different guy than the guy who's like. Wine Constrictor, Rishkar, mm-hmm. Birders, Gearhulk, right? Like, these the, like, are two the trans different guys. the mines and yeah. just possess effects. So, I thought it was interesting to talk about this because, like, I feel like everybody's doing this right now. Mm-hmm. Like, for beatdown decks are doing it, combo decks are doing it. Well, even like what I was saying with, with Blue Red Control, um, one thing you have to know as a Marvel player is to keep in your Harness Lightning's post board. Not just, just Gearhulk, but some lists bring in. Um, Thing in the ice. Well, yeah, too. Blu-ray controls like fifteen guys or something, right? Like, it's, yeah, they're like Dragon Master, Dragon Master Outcast, Outcast, Thing, thing in the, in the ice. ice, Sphinx of the Final Word. Yep. Uh, well, you can't kill that with Harness Lane, but those other guys, Kefnet, but yeah. like they're, but they're like no guys main deck. Like main deck, they're just for Gear Hulk, Gear Hulk, and um, the Funeral. the land. Yeah. yeah. But then after board deck, they could literally have like fifteen threat creatures. Well, that's why you want to keep in all your Harness Lane. It's a Marvel deck. You know, it's weird to me when I used to play. Teamer Tower, because mm. you could add like you know some versions of Teamer Tower, or you're playing against you know Shadows Grix deck. There's like thing in the ice in the matchups, but like you're happy to take out your point removal. But then like thing in the ice is actually a thing that you have to care about in a sideboard game. It's kind of weird, you know. I mean, I never actually lost to one, but it still felt weird. Like I'm like, mm. oh, it's actually gonna flip. I have to like. Figure out how I'm going to kill this stupid thing. And maybe you kill it with, like, a tower and an incendiary flow. It's yeah. not that big a deal, but... And it's like the Marvel matchup, like, the mirror you have to keep in your harness lanes for their tireless trackers. Because the, the post-board games become not as much on the, you know, turn four Marvel Woolmog. It's their, their tireless tracker games now. Yeah, but is that... So, here's a card, I think, that doesn't get enough play in Marvel. What about Spellqueller, right? So, like, let's say you're, like, five-mana Marvel Dispel... Like, Spellqueller just stops you, right? You can't dispel a Spellqueller. You can't negate a Spellqueller. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's... 
Because harness lightning is bone color, though. You can. That's true. That's a true story. Uh, but they're going to have dispels and negates and more spell colors for you. But, um, yeah, I just think this is, like, super relevant to right this second, right? It's not always been relevant, but right right now I think people are switching. Really At least as long as I've been playing, I've always known it's a thing, right? Like, the transformational <laughs> sideboard approach to a, to a game. Um, I think it was the first time you ever had a transformational type sideboard. Ooh. Keep talking. I think I think of this now. Uh, like, I, I, think I, I, I didn't play competitive magic until really like like college. Like I mean, just knowing you, I think you've had tip. Like, there's like I played Abzan Aggro with like Elspeth on my sideboard. There's like five different <laughs> kinds of sideboarding strategies, like approximately. Yeah. I think that you're you're what's I think would typically be called a a tweak sideboard player. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't so, go like on a full full transformation. Well, no, a tweak sideboard player is just like I'm gonna take out this card for this card and I'm just like an adjust the matchup by like sure 15 degrees or something it's like not even like three degrees like and you're not you're not upsetting the balance of your deck at all right or you just do something like I remember my first like real conscious memory of being in a competitive sideboarded game against you like you were playing an Abzan mid-range deck and you sided in Nissa World Waker right which I guess has a different dimension to other things that you might have had. But really, it's just like a five casting cost threat permanent, right? Like, it's not it's not like you're changing the dimension of your deck that much, right? Isn't this World Rigger so different than, than Siege, uh, Rhino. Siege Rhino, right? Like, you're, I guess, haste hitting me for four with your five drop? Well, I mean, I, I guess the cards I bored out could, what, Heroes Downfall, right? That doesn't kill anything in your deck. Yeah, I had, like, no permanence. You had, you had some card the Drifting Death. Hexproof. Uh, so I did, in fact, have that card. So I was I, th- I was boring on cards like that. No, I'm just saying. But yeah, like, yeah. it didn't really. It's just like. But it doesn't change the deck like in a whole. Yeah, you're just like, like oh, it's just this like, card that's poop. It's, another, it's just, a card it's just that's a new like threat, a pretty good right? threat, yeah. right? Like, but I think like my conception of you is like it's always been kind of, kind of that's how you've approached sideboarding for the most part. Mm-hmm. Versus, I mean, I've played so many more tournaments than you have, right? And I've played played a, a lot longer than you. I mean, right now you're playing way more than I am, but like just historically, I played a, a wider array of decks I'm, I try to use my sideboards to have like a lot of impact right like I th- my, my fundamental belief in life is that sideboard cards are like four times as valuable as main deck cards and mm. so I don't like to tweak uh, I like to like board out like I like to cards. like smash the table with my sideboard okay. cards. Give me, give me, uh, maybe not a, an old example, but more like an example I would know. Or the well, I mean, know. just even if we're talking about the the article we did last last episode last week, winner winner chicken dinner. I sideboarded the card Fortune Thief, and it which is a creature, right? But like, it's a creature that if you don't have the correct cards in your deck, you can never beat this creature, mm-hmm. right? Like, if your opponent is green-white and he doesn't have serrated arrows in his deck and he just landed, it's just a 1-1 creature that says you can't Ooh. lose. I, when you played the five-color dragons deck, you yeah. had Master of Waves and, and Omen, uh, Speaker. Omen Speaker. Yeah, so... Um, eight cards. But that was, that was that just for the mono-red matchup at the time, or...? Uh, I brought those in. Um, I brought that package in against mono-red for sure, right? So Omen Speaker provides a blue pip for Master... First of all, it's awesome. When they have two one creatures and you have a one three, like you're and just, you scry two, you, yeah, I mean you're just landing your land drops, right? Um, yeah, it's just a good blocker. Like, in worst case scenario, they have to like use a card to get it out of the way. It's, that's three life that didn't go to your face, you know. But it provides a blue pip for Master of Waves, 
But I sided an Omen speaker in in the in the match that I won to win to win the regional, uh, the regional PT game. My opponent was Esper Dragons, so I figured like a, f- a, f- a fork tongue invocation was a card, right? He could fork tongue. Oh uh, invo- yeah, foul, foul tongue invocation. Yeah, foul tongue invocation. Sorry. So I just played Omen Speaker on the second turn. I, I remember because I heard later because Chris Bakula was watching my match from behind. He like went insane on Twitter. He's just like. It's like Mike just landed an omen speaker. His opponent's jaw just hit the because you could just tell he had like three foul tongue invocations in his hand, right? Like now, like my dragons are all alive because he can't beat an omen speaker, right? It created a fundamental, fundamentally different dimension of the deck, right? So what happens here is he has his three casting cost. Uh, card that can kill uncounterable creatures or can kill hexproof creatures, right? Mm. So I had hexproof guys and I had uncounterable guys. Yeah, Yeah, but it's like, all right, I'm going to kill this with a profit. But it's horrible if you have garbage creatures in your deck, right? So (laughs) I just like, I'm going to add a garbage creature to my deck and just basically counter your your game plan, right? Uh, Yeah, they're like... um, There's like a long tradition of like black beatdown decks, you know, that are... Black beatdown decks historically uh, are tend to be much more offensive, and red beatdown decks tend to be much more mid range. And people don't realize that they think of red as being so so offensive. But think about this: if you play with cards like shock, right, that could go to the opponent's face, what is the use of a shock most commonly in a beatdown deck to remove a permanent? Right, mm-hmm. a black beatdown deck just attacks you, right? Like they don't they don't mess with your permanents that much. So, a long tradition in, in, I guess that's, I don't know if that's less true now because there's like Fatal Push and Standard, right, in Grasp of Darkness, but a, a, a pretty celebrated thing for, for Black Beatdown decks was to remove their most disadvantageous creatures, like creatures who couldn't block or creatures that damaged mm-hmm. you in exchange for creature removal, which would, would bring them much more to the mid-range part of, um, part of the, the spectrum of decks. Because just a mono offensive plan was poor against red, right? Then that that's a that's a kind of thing that that very much creates a different dimension in your deck. Um, and it also like you know, for sake of argument, if your red deck is full of shocks, and I'm taking out small creatures, the shocks now have fewer targets. And especially if I bring in like a big creature, a creature that's good at killing creatures, right? It 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 changes it changes the lineup of your cards versus my cards. Um, we did the, uh, I think, tuning the second best deck a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the cyborg strategies there was to just take out literally every creature. We took out, it was a substantial leap for us to figure out to take out Solemn Simulacrum. Solemn Simulacrum is thought of as being a mana acceleration card, a fundamental piece of the deck, not just a creature, right? Mm-hmm. This is part of our engine. We figured out to take it out because if, you know, even if they were bribing just that, it was still a target, right? So we made their entire cyber strategy bad, the blue decks. Um, I don't know, like super recent. Uh, I mean, think about um, think about the dimension that this is. This isn't the same because it's not permanence, right? But think about the dimension of your deck when you're playing the the Naya Burn or the Boros Burn deck when you add a card like Deflecting Palm, right? Like what? What function does deflecting palm really serve? 
to like deal a ton of damage to your <laughs> But it doesn't just deal a ton it, of damage, right? It stops life it's link a fog, and stuff. Yeah, it's right? a fog. So if you think about an infect deck going all in with a huge amount of of pump spells on a creature and then you know their trump card is something like a vines of the vastwood so you know I'm going to go burn that creature and then or you know or, or path that creature and they have a vines of the vastwood you have this card that's targeting the damage not targeting the creature mm-hmm. right it's hard for them to interact with but think about even the match that you beat was it Dan Ward mm-hmm. to win the Star City Regionals you deflecting palm to beat his combo right his he had this like Gigundo 7-7 lifelink. It's not just that you were able to deal a bunch of damage. You cost him lifelink. You cost him his card drawing engine, right? Because his card drawing engine is predicated on the lifelink. So it's not the same, right? Because if if opponents have cards that can interact with your hand, they can they can interact in uh, with deflecting palm in a way that isn't really talked about in the old switcheroo. But it just it it is an example of just creating this different dimension of your deck mm-hmm. that is actually quite synergistic because right? you're you know you want to deal direct damage to the opponent's face that's going on here, but you also don't want to die. <laughs> yeah, but it like undoes that great. Yeah, it just super undoes them. You know, it, I think that that's um, that's one. Uh, I remember there was this frustrated match. Uh, Blue red green glare against uh I'm sorry, blue white green glare against blue white green glare, bank glare against bank glare. Last round of US Nationals, I want to say two thousand and seven. This is the enchantment from Ravnica, right? The like you tap a Yeah, it's like a bad opposition. Yeah. Yeah. Um so my my good buddy Steve Saden was getting his face planted by Jerry Thompson and the reason he goes it was Jerry had a retachroma in play. And he looks up and he's like, "Thanks, Mike." And then Jerry like laughs. And Jerry has watched me play on, uh, in the in the opens, <laughs> and he's like, "What's that?" I'm like, uh, "My morph was Redachroma, which I couldn't flip. I had to flip it with uh, no, it wasn't Glare. So I was um, Bant uh, Bant Momentary Blink, but like the creature has you know, brought his opponent's colors. So you know, but it it's like you you have this this." this card that the opponent just can't deal with, right? Mm-hmm. And it becomes available to you as a as an extension of your core strategy, which in this case is momentary blink. You play you play a morph and then blink. And then you blink it. it. And then all of a sudden you've got this guy that they can't can't interact with. Um it's uh I, I think that, you know, those kind of things are probably still going I mean in a different sense are they going on right now? I don't know. Uh, I think the switcheroo itself is going on with Marvel, right? Are there even more creature poor decks than Marvel? I mean, Blue Red is a really creature poor deck, right? And the thing that's so special about Blue Red is that even though it's got at least four creatures, like actually say like card type is creature, or in this case artifact creature, most creature removal, Shock, Fatal Push, Grasp of Darkness, doesn't actually kill a Torrential Gear Hulk. So they can know you've got a creature, but then they're going to take out their small-scale removal anyway, which is going to make cards like Thing in the Ice and Dragon Master Outcast that much better. Yeah? Uh, have you figured out what your what your first uh, your first sideboard was yet? The first sideboard? I think I'm, I'm thinking, like, right back to Abzan. 
I maybe like it was even before that when I played like John Monsters or whatever. Oh, I remember Monsters. when I played. You were playing John Monsters. It was like early in your tournament career, and yeah. I was playing. Surprise, surprise, Boros Burn. Right. It was the first time we played against each other. And I, I, I was just thinking about me wanting to side in high impact sideboard cards versus tweak sideboard cards. Neither one is right, right? There, there's like a bunch of different strategies. It's whatever's appropriate at the time. But I remember I brought in um, what's that R one for a Seder? Seder Fire Dancer. Yeah, I brought yeah. Seder Fire Dancer and just like I think my deck probably didn't have very many creatures. It was all burn, right? Yeah. And then I'm like side in Seder Fire Dancer, and you're like you read it, and you're like oh, and I just like killed everyone of your yeah. creatures, and, like while bashing you in the face, and I go, I guess I didn't prepare for this card. <laughs> but that's like you know that's how that's how it is. I I, I don't know I like high impact cyborg cards that are hard to deal with alright so quick question yeah Here, here's a, something I've been thinking about so in Omaha I played Matt Nass round 5 he's like a Grand Prix champion right? yeah so I beat, him, I beat him game 1 with like the Marvel plan and then game what deck was he team he, no, he's, he's black green oh black green and then games 2 and 3 unfortunately I'm holding the 5 game 2 and like multiple 6 game 3 but mm-hmm. he crushed me with like transgress and dispos- like dispossess effects what if I like had enough slots on my sideboard to cut all Woodweaver's Puzzle Knot, all Ulamog, all Marvel against that deck. That's just like that's too crazy, right? Uh, and bring in like all my white, bring in like all my negate effects, like my confiscation coups, my tra- like tireless trackers, whatever other cards I have. But I mean, that's a thing you can do, right? But the question you should have is: is the configuration of the deck that you're going to be presenting, you know, able any to be good? Sure, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like when I was talking about cutting. Arc Slogger and Solemn Simulacrum from the Kurodasaw Red deck, we were presenting an almost unbeatable, you know, mm-hmm. plan B, right? Like, uncounterable fireballs is something that's really good against a blue deck. They can't race it. Their guys are like 2 4. So, or like, yeah, 0 2 or something, right? They're just never going to race you. If he's playing like Winding Constrictor and you're playing like some super slow confiscation coup deck, he might just kill you, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So he can't. Oh, he can't lost legacy him very well. Like, who cares? Yeah, I was. I was. It was like a thought that crossed my mind. But I'm like, no, I should just keep like my, my whole Marvel plan in. Hopefully, I don't mulligan or he. Right, do you remember I was playing Sultai Marvel last round of Grand Prix New Jersey? My <laughs> opponent's playing like a some some sort of red, red white, white like brew kind of yeah, brew like, jank thing I annihilate her with the Marvel plan in game one right and I'm like yeah. oh my god yeah okay this is this check is... out how smart I am I draw like a hundred <laughs> cards in game two and in game three with tireless tracker and she just manages to beat me right I don't remember because you bored out your Marvel Ulmach plan because she, she had no way to beat Marvel Ulmach. Yeah, so I, I mean, I mean, they had, she had like theories and declaration zones, right? Yeah, so but she could easily deal with like crappy little creatures, right? But, she had like big guys and rats. But right? like, I'm, I'm looking at you, like when you're boring these cards out. I think I looked, like, I looked over to BDM. I'm like, what is he doing? Yeah, it was like three and X or whatever. Like I wasn't like really trying to win, but I, I was sure. just like I just wanted to have fun at that point. Because I mean, it's so fun to play a tireless tracker. Like, yeah, I, I was, like, like play a play a tireless you tracker. Like, land a tireless tracker. Play another tireless tracker. Play evolving wilds. Like get like all the triggers in the world. Negate your thing. Like that's awesome. Yeah, right? but yeah, but I didn't win. Yeah. But it's just it's like that. Like your if your plan A is so good, especially if you're on the play, right? Like being on the play is very powerful. I don't know. I, I think I think it depends. Um. Probably maybe in a, a future week we can we can visit one or one of the articles that I that I wrote about the rock paper scissors concept in that game right mm. and let's say like just for sake of this uh, of this conversation maybe there's like 
rock 10 and rock 5, right? Papers, paper 10, paper 5. Paper, you know, scissors 10, scissors 5. You're like, well, tell you what. I start out as rock 8, right? And I'm real good against, like, scissors scissors 7, okay? And then you're like, well, the scissors deck is going to have all these things that, they, you know, either just decrease the number of my rock. And in in response, I can be, you know, something. Like, I, I, I will become paper, right? And paper isn't good against scissors but they're like not even scissors after sideboarding they're like another thing they're like an anti-rock deck I think there is some virtue to doing that if you know they're going to go in a certain direction but if you're just depleting the power level of your deck so strongly like I, I don't know I, I think it, it's it's pretty contextually driven mm-hmm. that's that's my take alright uh, what are you playing in standard right now uh, I don't know. I have the Invitational coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, when we met, I was prepping for the Invitational. That was literally oh my was a, that was my warm up tournament, which I won. Uh, I was so happy, and I dropped the ball playing for whatever. I, wheels came off on day two, man. I was like started off X and one. Um, I'm not sure what I'm going to play for the Invitational. Marvel was very strong. It was seven slots out of eight at, in Omaha. Yeah, but zero slots in like the other Grand Prix sure. this weekend. Like I mean, that may was like one each or something. It was like yeah. two, two for sixteen. I, I gotta think of what I want. I want to play. I'm not sure. Maybe we'll brew something spicy. Oh, blue white spirits. <laughs> Let me tell you, dude. Heart of Kieran. You just go red green. Heart of Kieran. I could get behind that. I played that in Montreal. I know, but I didn't like it then. Maybe I like it now. Right. I don't like it now. Never mind. Okay. Change my mind. All right. Uh, well, we'll figure it out, hopefully. <laughs> All right. All right. This is Roman a- says we're figuring it out, so I guess <laughs> we're figuring it out. We're going to figure it out. All right. All I'm right. Michael J. I'm Roman Fusco. Oh, important things. Two important things. Number one, Roman's a goober, so he has a new Twitter account. It's yes. Roman underscore Fusco. So, like, if you were just tweeting at Roman Fusco and he, like, never got back to you, A, he is truly, you know, a, you know, a diva. You know, he, he doesn't do that. But he actually also lost his Twitter account. Yeah, I, I couldn't remember the so login for my old one. He's now Roman underscore Fusco. Yeah. Take note, <laughs> Ancestral Recall fans. That's one. Number two, if you like this podcast, etc., please subscribe. You know, make it so you don't miss any episodes. Download us on iTunes. Dine- give us a nice review. Give us a nice review. If you love the podcast, please, please, please rate it however many stars you want to rate it. By that number, I mean five, not four, not fewer than four, certainly. Rate it five. Write a nice review about how, you know, how super sexy you think Roman must look. <laughs> However it is, you know, you would be swiping right on, on his his chiseled manliness. Um, and if, you know, if you don't like the podcast, I don't know why you're still listening at this point if you don't like the podcast, just send me a nasty Twitter message. <laughs> so I could take it, right? I could I could take it. And I, I'll just, I'll just forward it to Roman, uh, Roman Fusco, so no one will see it. <laughs> Send it to Roman underscore Fusco. He might think you don't like him when, in fact, chiseled manliness. So those two things: uh, subscribe, heart us. Uh, you know, call up KYT, call up Face to Face Games. Be like KYT. I know you have these other podcasts. I know you have Top Eight Magic and First Strike, but my heart belongs to Ancestral Recall. <laughs> those messages will be well received. Um, maybe not by KYT, BDM, Brian D, <laughs> but I, I, w- I would like it, kind of, at least. Um, yeah, so, but yeah, subscribe, tell KYT you love this podcast, um, 
you know, leave us a good review. And it's Roman underscore Fusco. Yes. Emphasis on the underscore. Underscore. All right. That's it. This is the Ancestral Recall Podcast signing this, off. This was the old Twitcheroo. <laughs> Bye-bye.